Let me go ahead and pray for us, and we will get started. All right. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the uh, privilege of gathering together this morning. I pray your blessing on our time in the word. Lord, we pray that you give us grace to clothe ourselves in humility toward one another, to cast our anxieties on you, and to trust in your sovereignty and your care for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We are in 1 Peter 5 this morning, the last chapter, last week going through 1 Peter. Before we get into to, uh, chapter 5, a quick recap of chapter 4 last week. Um, last week, we were continuing our discussion of the Christian response to suffering, and uh, Peter highlighted several uh, things that should characterize that response. Uh, one was this, this uh, reality that we need to pursue holiness in contrast to the debauchery of the world. Peter described this flood of debauchery, right, and we are not to be marked by that anymore. Um, even in suffering. Uh, we are to be self-controlled and sober-minded, which enables us to pray. Uh, he talked about being dedicated to loving and serving the members of the church with whatever resources, whatever skills and abilities God has given us. And he talked about how we should not be surprised by suffering. We are to prepare our minds for it in verse 1. Uh, we should actually expect it. Uh, we know that um, God is using suffering for our good. Um, and in that suffering, we're not alone because Peter reminded us that we've been given the Holy Spirit, the Comforter from John 16, uh, who sustains us, is with us in our trials. And then finally, he reminded us of the character of God, that God is a faithful creator who rules all things and is supremely good toward us in Christ. And so this character of God is a critical comfort for us in our afflictions and whatever circumstances we find ourselves. So then Peter... Uh, moves on in chapter 5, beginning of chapter 5, and addresses the elders in the churches. So we're going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 5, and we'll take chapter 5 in chunks as we've been doing. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. All right, so Peter, uh, in verse 1, he addresses the elders in the churches, and he writes to them as three things uh, in the text here. He writes them as a fellow elder, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So Peter writes them as an elder, um, and I, I like this. This is a helpful reminder for us that Peter is writing uh, as an elder. He's writing as one who has boots on the ground, you know, leadership experience in the church, right? He's not writing from some ivory tower, but he's writing from real experience, um, and he writes them as an equal, right? Not as the head of the church, as some have posed, right? But he's writing to them as a fellow elder. So he's not viewing himself as some kind of superior status here, even though he's an apostle. Um, he's also writing to them as one who witnessed the sufferings of Christ. Um, Peter's again reminding his readers and the elders in particular that in suffering, we're following the example of Christ as we've been talking about. And Peter himself saw the sufferings of Christ and saw how um, God used them, how he turned them 
into glory and good for the church. And so he says that we are also a, a partaker. He describes himself and us as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. He's writing from this confidence of the future glory that all believers will share, that we are partakers in. We're not just kind of outside observers of it, uh, but we are united to Christ, and so we partake in that glory. We will experience it as well. Um, so again, we, we keep seeing this trajectory throughout First Peter of suffering to glory, and we see that again in the way Peter describes uh, himself uh, in this, this opening verse here of chapter 5 as well. And this should be an encouragement right, to uh, all the officers, for those who are laboring among the church and are weary of the task of shepherding. Peter's reminding them of this, uh, this prize, right? the glory that is going to be revealed as an encouragement uh, to press on and not to grow weary. Peter exhorts the elders to shepherd the flock of God in verse 2, to feed it, to protect it, to govern it. We'll say to exercise oversight, uh, to watch over the flock. Um, it's interesting to think about Peter giving this exhortation in light of the one that he received from Christ. Uh, if we look at John 21, right, the, the, Peter's restoration. Um, this is, you know, Peter, Christ is risen, and uh, Peter returns to Galilee with a couple of the other disciples, and they go out fishing, and they're fishing all night, and they catch nothing, right? And Christ arrives on the beach, you know, and tells them to cast their nets in on the right side of the boat, and they catch this unbelievable haul of fish. And Peter recognizes the Lord, and he just jumps into the ocean and wades to shore. Um, and they have breakfast together. And Christ says uh, to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And so Peter is using, or excuse me, Jesus is using this shepherding language here. Do you notice what he's saying? Feed my sheep, care for my sheep, feed my sheep. It's the shepherding language. Um, and so that's the same language that Peter is using as he exhorts the elders to do the same thing. Um, and this is standard biblical language for those who have care of God's people. Um, we have shepherding analogies all throughout Scripture. Some of our favorite Psalms, right? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Think of Psalm 100, know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Um, in the, the prophets, Jeremiah 3.15 I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Ezekiel 34, where the Lord brings us indictment against the spiritual leaders of Israel. And he says, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds. Thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep. Um, so we've got this, this shepherding analogy that is extensive uh, throughout Scripture of comparing the people of God to sheep, to, to the flock, um, and the spiritual leaders to shepherds. And note whose flock it is. Peter says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. It is the flock of God. So All Saints, then, is not the Sessions Church. It's not Dennis's church or Levi's church either. It is God's church. 
We, we who serve in leadership are serving as temporary stewards of what is God's possession, right? And it's the, the flock is Christ's church because he's the one who purchased it. He purchased it with his own blood. And not only is it God's flock, but Peter identifies Christ in verse 4 as the chief shepherd. Right? This is the real shepherd of the church. Christ is the one who laid down his life for the sheep and redeemed them. And so he is the chief shepherd just as the flock is God's flock. And Christ actively shepherds his people and cares for them through the service of the under-shepherds. And so this has uh, important ramifications for the way that we think about how we do church and how we lead church. Right? We think of the regulative principle, right? It's God's church, it's God's flock, and so we do what he has commanded in worship. Um, and it has other ramifications as well. Uh, one that I thought of is the way that we teach and, and preach the word, right? The, the under-shepherd who exercises oversight um, on behalf of the chief shepherd is not free to teach whatever he wants, right? Dennis can't go up there and just talk about his week, you know, on Sunday uh, as, a, as a helpful exhortation for us, right? That's not appropriate. Um, we are called, we are commanded to teach the whole counsel of God, right? Nothing more and nothing less, to do otherwise is to subvert Christ's authority over the church. Um, so that's one reason that at All Saints we strongly prefer expository preaching, for instance, because when you're preaching through whole books of the Bible, you're getting the whole counsel of God. Um, and, and so it's, it's easier to be faithful than if you're doing topical preaching and you can kind of end up cherry-picking certain things. So Christ is the chief shepherd, and then Peter mentions this this unfading crown of glory uh, in verse 4, that, uh, that God will commend those who shepherd faithfully, and he holds out this reward as a motivation to elders to persevere. And, you know, I read this and I think to myself, well, what is this unfading crown of glory? Uh, what is Peter talking about here? Um, Clowney described this as the glory of the Lord. The, it's God's glory is this unfading crown of glory that will be our great joy. Isaiah 28.5 says this explicitly, in that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. All right, so God himself is this crown of glory. God is the reward of his people. And so Christ then is the elder's example in serving and is also the elder's glory and hope. All right, so coming back to verse, verses 2 and 3. Peter gives these three contrasting pairs of uh, negative and positive attributes to describe how the elder is to shepherd the flock. He says, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not under compulsion, but willingly. This really speaks to attitude. What is the attitude with which we're serving? Right? The elder should serve cheerfully and joyfully, not grudgingly. Right? Serving the church should not be uh, a drudgery, it shouldn't be this, you know, this burdensome duty, right? but we should approach it with a willing spirit. Critical to having that willing spirit is a love for Christ. Right? A love for Christ will kindle love for the church, will, will kindle love for the flock. So if we only love Christ a little, it's going to be hard to serve you know, the scattered and needy flock of God uh, sacrificially. You know, We think about uh, that example we just read, or the, the scripture in John 21 we just read, as you know, Jesus is exhorting Peter to tend the flock, what is he asking him? He's asking him, do you love me? Right? And so our love for Christ is critical, uh, critical for uh, service to Christ and service to the church. 
So not under compulsion, but willingly. And then he says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So the first one is about attitude. This one speaks to motivation. Why are we serving? So the elder must not be uh, motivated out of any kind of um, personal aims, right? Self-aggrandizement, uh, to not, should not be motivated um, to serve as a platform to elevate one's standing, right? It's truly a role of service. Um, the TE should not be primarily motivated by their salaries. Again, it should, it should spring from love for Christ and concern for the well-being of the flock. And then finally, Peter says, not domineering, but being examples. Um, and this starts to get more into, it's still kind of about attitude, but it also gets more into approach, more of the how. Um, and Peter gets this after addressing the, the attitude and the motivation. And what he's saying is that uh, elders should not be ordering people around kind of imperiously, but leading by example, just as Christ modeled service by washing his disciples' feet. Right? That's, the, that's the great analogy here of Christian service and Christian leadership. So either, lead, or elders should lead from the front. They should lead by example, working, as Paul said, to, mature, to uh, present everyone mature in Christ. And so elders' lives then should be exemplary. Uh, they should be worthy of emulation. We should be able to say with Paul, follow me as I follow Christ. And as we talk about you know, do, not domineering, I feel like I need to say this, that um, discipline is not domineering. Right? I think some people confuse, confuse that. Right? There is a, a way of leadership that can be domineering that's a kind of like ordering people around, and that's not good. Right? We are to lead by example. But discipline is actually critical. It's necessary. It's part of being uh, a good shepherd. Um, so not being domineering doesn't mean that there's no discipline in the church. So when we think about these lists, these are really heavily focused on the heart of the elder, if you notice that, more so than the techniques. God is more concerned with our motives and our attitude than with the methods. Um, And our relationship to Christ is critical. It shapes the way that we care for his people. Um, I also want to say that it's it's not a given for uh, for elders to serve this way, for elders to serve willingly and eagerly and by example. This is hard. Um, anyone who's served as an elder for any length of time knows something of the burden of pastoral care. It's not a light burden. And so as elders, we actually, we do need this. We need to be encouraged to serve because it's a lot easier to just kind of step back and coast and not, um, not invest the, the time that it takes to shepherd well and not embrace the emotional toll of pastoral uh, care uh, that shepherding takes. And so as members of the church, as you, you know, read through scripture and you encounter passages like these, uh, don't just gloss over this. This is a great reminder for you to pray. Pray for your elders. Pray these things. You know, as you read through 1 Peter chapter 5, pray for us as a session that we would serve willingly and that we would serve eagerly and by example. Pray for strength and wisdom and eagerness and humility for your elders. All right, so the last verse in this paragraph, um, Peter shifts gears having addressed the elders. He's now addressing uh, those who are younger. He says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So he's exhorting them to humility as well. Um, there's differing interpretations of what does Peter mean when he says younger. Um, Harold thinks that he's re- actually referring to age, right? So not just younger in the faith, which is one way to take this. 
but that he's actually singling out young men specifically as those who are least likely to humbly submit to the governance of the elders, those who are most likely to be headstrong, to not listen to you know, the wise counsel and the advice, to, to follow their own uh, direction and not listen to the elders. Right? And so he's saying he's calling them out specifically as kind of like the, the toughest case in a sense, right? that they, they too especially should be subject to the elders and follow them since the elders are seeking their spiritual welfare. So be subject to the elders, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. All members of Christ's body are to act with humility toward one another, as well as being subject to the elders. And this idea, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility, this is similar wording to um, Colossians three twelve, where Paul says, clothe yourselves with compassion, or Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ like a garment. Humility is the garment you wear, is what Peter is saying, that we're covered, we're wrapped up in it, that everything we do is done through an attitude of humility. Um, that sounds kind of extreme and difficult, but the reality is that there's an incredible amount of damage that is done by pride. Right? Pride ruins everything. It ruins all relationships. Pride refuses to uh, submit to authority like Peter's been telling us to do. Uh, to any authority, right? Not just the elders. Um, the proud person cannot be a friend. They can't earnestly love. They can't show hospitality without grumbling. They can't use their gifts to serve one another, right? All these things that Peter's been exhorting us to do. Pride nullifies all of that, uh, right? The proud person can't take advice, right? They're, they're self-sufficient. They don't need anything, um, right? So that uh, it's just, it's, in, it's incredibly antithetical towards love in the church and towards um, cohesion in the church and towards real uh, friendship and caring for one another. Um, and proud, uh, pride also, ultimately, is that's the sin, right, that led Satan to rebel against God. And so God will ruthlessly expose the folly of the proud heart. Pride sets itself against God. And so that's why Peter quotes Proverbs 3.34 here, that God is committed to oppose the proud. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So if we know anything about ourselves, we should be afraid of being proud, right? Because we, we should know that we desperately need God's grace. We, we do not want to find ourselves in opposition to God. You know, we do not, this is a warning lest we become you know, puffed up and are rebuked by God. We need to walk in this humble reliance of him for all things, all of our interactions uh, in our daily lives. Matthew Henry said, humility is the great preserver of peace and order in all Christian churches and societies. Consequently, pride is the great disturber of them and the cause of most dissensions and breaches in the church. So as we think about, you know, pride and humility practically within the church, what this means is that we should be ready to actually receive rebuke from one another and to receive counsel from one another uh, that's difficult to do, right? We think, okay, I need to bear each other's burdens, right? And that's part of that too. That's, that's a part of humility. We need to do that. We also need to be ready to receive uh, rebuke. And this can be a kind of a litmus test for us, I guess, in how we're doing or uh, how, how humble we are is how well do you take criticism, right? Uh, if someone confronts you with a sin in the church, or even if you, let's say at work, right? Someone gives you constructive criticism. Hey, you didn't do this well. You need to do that better. Uh, or here's a better approach, you know, how do we take that? Are we immediately defensive? 
you know, are we all riled up within when we hear that uh, constructive criticism? Um, uh, you know, and so that's a really helpful kind of test for us, right, as we're just living life, uh, is how well we can um, receive criticism or receive rebuke. Any comments or questions on that section before we move on? Yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think through, because um, I don't know necessarily that you would say um, we're not going to pursue avenues of ministry because they might lead to fame. But, so I think the motivation is probably the, the critical piece of that. Like, so for instance, and I mean, you could debate whether or not the, you know, w- different approaches to ministry, but like um, my church growing up, they did a radio mi- ministry, right? And so the pa- they would like put sermons on the radio or you know, things like that. And so naturally more people, you know, people outside the church are gonna hear that. Um, is that a bad thing or is it not? I mean, in one sense, it's kind of like, well, more people are hearing the gospel outside the church. So, you know, it's hard to argue that that's like a terrible thing to do just because it might, you know, increase the fame of the pastor. So I think the heart attitude is critical um, and not, not why are we seeking it, right? And so you can, I think even in, in fame, you can kind of, you can try to practice obscurity to some extent, right, and not promoting yourself, so to your point about, um, Rebecca, about surrounding ourselves with people who will keep us in ac- accountable is, is hugely important, right? Especially, I think, for people in those positions, in the more front-facing positions, absolutely. Yeah. We need one another. We need, we need real life in the church, real accountability. All right, we're going to read 6 through 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. All right, so Peter is continuing this discussion of humility, and he tells us, he's been talking about um, being humble amongst ourselves, right, with one another, and now he describes this humility uh, under the sovereignty of God, and he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Um, This mighty hand of God recalls a couple things. Uh, One, it it reminds us of the Exodus. There's, uh, uh, excuse me, an Exodus uh, Moses explicitly uses this term a couple times. Um, so Exodus 3.19, God says, But know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand, so this mighty hand of God. And then in 32.11, uh, reflecting on it afterwards, Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Right, so we have this hand of God that dealt the plagues to the Egyptians, that judged them, and at the same time delivered his people, brought them out of bondage. And this mighty hand of God, I think, also speaks to creation. Isaiah forty twelve says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in the scales, and the hills in a balance? 
And so what Peter is saying here is that this same hand, right, that held the, the oceans, right, that marked off the heavens, that delivered his people from bondage in Egypt, is the one that we can trust, that we can trust in our afflictions. So it's this, this humility, this submission to God's sovereignty, to his will and to his plans, to his ways in the midst of suffering and persecution. And as we talked about before with sanctification, we know this, you know, this, the creator, right, who shaped the world is also busy at work shaping us into his likeness through this suffering. The mighty hand of God, you know, again, as we think about pride and humility, God is opposed to the pride. It will pull down the pride, but it will exalt the humble, um, and it will exalt us, right, because we know that our suffering will not last forever, but the exaltation will be forever. And so Peter says that this is going to happen. He will exalt you um, at the proper time. God is orchestrating all things according to his infinite plan, his, his wisdom, his foreknowledge. Um, and we have to trust God's timing with this, right? Because God's timing is not our timing. Um, and so we, we need patience and humility to wait on God. Uh, we think of Joseph waiting in Egypt for years and years and years before his exaltation. Um, but he was exalted in this life, and we're not guaranteed that, right? So exaltation may happen in this life, you know, in a worldly sense, and it may not. It may happen on the last day. Now, Peter has been uh, describing this, uh, this suffering uh, really throughout the book, and he's, he's been telling his readers to expect it, right? To know that suffering is coming. Do not be surprised by it. Be ready for it. And that can cause us a little bit of anxiety. You know, we think, oh, man, suffering is definitely coming. I'm going to experience hard things in life. Um, and, he's, and so Peter says here in verse 7 explicitly that we should not be weighed down by that, that we should not have a fear of the future. So he says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Cast your anxieties. Literally throw them off. We are not to be weighed down by care and concern over future sufferings or whatever the future holds. Matthew Henry, uh, he puts things so succinctly. It's fantastic. He says, he he will either avert what you fear or support you under it. That is such a helpful uh, reminder. And as I was thinking about this, I was uh, reflecting on the fact that anxiety, right, we can be prone to anxiety, and anxiety is not a victimless crime, right? Anxiety doesn't just affect us. Uh, it distracts us from doing what God has called us to do. Uh, being consumed with worry prevents us from praising God, from meditating on his goodness, from giving him the praise that he is due for what he has done for us, and it prevents us from being useful to others. Uh, it prevents us from empathy, from being um, concerned about the needs of others because we're completely absorbed with our own worries. And Peter is comprehensive here. You notice he says, cast all your anxieties on him. All kinds of cares, right? Not just the big ones, right? Not just fear of persecution or concern over the direction of the church or big world events, but all kinds of cares, family problems, health issues, personal difficulties, tension at work, whatever it is. We are to cast it all upon the Lord. A former pastor of mine pointed out that failing to cast our anxieties on him is actually an act of pride, which really it's, you know, struck me. I'd never thought about it that way before. But what, he's, what he was describing is this, right? The, the prideful heart doesn't need anyone, right? We don't need help. We're self-sufficient, and so we're trying to handle everything on our own. 
Um, and so it's, the, it's actually the humble heart that recognizes that we don't have it all under control, right? That the Lord does. And the humble heart is able then to truly entrust things to the Lord, to seek the Lord's care, to cast its burdens off, and to, to hand over, in a sense, its, its anxiety and its sorrows to the Lord. So we really have to cast off our pride first before we're able to cast off our anxieties and experience God's care for us. In verse 8, um, Peter says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Uh, Peter is again exhorting his reminders to be sober-minded. If you've been keeping track, this is the third time now that he said be sober-minded. It's this recurring theme in 1 Peter. Um, so this follows, uh, and to be watchful, right? So uh, just to, to caveat that, that phrase of, or the idea of casting our anxieties on the Lord, what he's saying here is that we are uh, we're to be carefree, we're not to be burned by anxiety, but we're not to be careless, right? There's still a watchfulness that we should have. Uh, we're to act responsibly in light of the times and in light of the spiritual danger that is posed to us. And so last time Peter exhorted sober-mindedness, he was describing this attitude of sobriety so that we would watch and pray. We'd live faithfully until the master's coming. And now he gives us a different reason for the sobriety. He says we need to be on guard against the attacks of the enemy. The church has an enemy. The church has an adversary. We don't often talk about this or think about it, I don't think. Uh, but Satan hates the church. He hates it with all the malice that he can muster. He's called the accuser of the brethren. We see this over and over in Scripture. In Zechariah, right, he's accusing Joshua. He accuses Job before the face of God. We see him accusing the church in Revelation. He wants to discredit God, to destroy God's church. Um, so this enemy is not principally the lost who revile us, but Satan himself. It's the devil. And Peter describes Satan here as a lion, a beast of prey who's seeking someone to devour, seeking to destroy the church. And so we need to be sober-minded and put on the full armor of God, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, to stand against the schemes of the devil. And so how are we to be sober-minded and to stand against the devil's schemes? Uh, well, first we have to know that we're at war, right? It's not a time for self-indulgence, for, for relaxation, but it's time to fight. We need to resist temptations to sin, uh, which wage war against our souls, as Peter said in chapter 2. There's all these things that Peter's been telling us go into this sober-mindedness that enables us to resist the schemes of the devil, um, not going along with the flood of debauchery that we talked about last week, living holy lives, uh, fearing the Lord, being more worried about sinning than about suffering, being devoted to the word, to fellowship, to, to the saints, to stand firm in the truth, uh, being quick to forgive, living in this humble reliance on God's strength to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And even in this you know, daily struggle that we have with sin, this spiritual warfare, we know that Satan will not ultimately succeed. So we have a, a sense of assurance and peace uh, because we know that, as Peter said in chapter 1, we're guarded through faith for the salvation ready to be revealed, right, that cannot be lost. So the, the danger of Satan to the saint is not that, not that Satan can overcome your faith, right, or that you are powerless to resist Satan, but the danger to us is that we, don't, that we won't take up the armor of God, right? The danger to us is that uh, we will fail to watch and pray, that we'll fail to be diligent in these things, and thus succumb to the schemes of the devil um, in, in causing us to sin. Uh, so we get a clue in, um, in verse 9 
as to the kinds of attacks that Satan brings from how Peter tells us to resist him. So Peter says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So we get these two things. Uh, first one, firm in your faith. So Satan's goal, if he could achieve it, would be our apostasy. But as we just said, we cannot be ultimately harmed if we keep the faith and continue in it, right? We know that God has secured our salvation. So this is a call to abide in Christ, as, as uh, Christ says in John 15, to remain in him. Uh, faith looks outside of ourselves, right? We look outside of ourselves to Christ. We're to hold fast to this trustworthy word. Um, and this is why good doctrine is so important, right? Good doctrine is firm ground to stand on when, we're, when everything's shifting or when we're feeling the, you know, the spiritual warfare more acutely. And this second point is really critical, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. What Peter is saying is, you need to know that you're not singled out for suffering, that this is one of the primary ways the devil attacks us. We've talked about before in this class that the Christian warfare is the battle of the mind, and we have this terrible tendency to isolate ourselves in difficulty, right? To think that we're the only ones going through some struggle or the only ones experiencing some kind of temptation. And, you know, Satan is the father of the lies, and the father of lies, and he specifically attacks us when we're, you know, weakened and, in, you know, in the midst of suffering. Uh, this lion analogy, you think of lions tend to uh, try and isolate, you know, one slower antelope from the rest of the herd, right? And they go after that one. And not to take the analogy too far, right, but I don't think it's too much of a stretch to, to realize that the same thing happens to us, right, in the midst of suffering and difficulty. We can start to believe some of these lies, right, that we are alone, that no one cares for us, that God doesn't care for us, that, you know, God is punishing us for our sin, you know, by this, this whatever, you know, ex- suffering or persecution we're experiencing. Um, and none of those are true, Right. Peter's been reminding us over and over again that God does care for us, that God is using this suffering for our good. And so how do we know experientially here that the same suffering is being experienced by the brotherhood? How do we know this? Well, we know it by living life with the brotherhood, by living life with the church, by fellowship with the saints. Right? So it's, in, it's absolutely critical not to isolate ourselves uh, from the church when we're experiencing trials, when we're struggling with sin. We see this on the session more often, I think, than we'd like to admit, that people tend to do this when they're struggling with sin, when they're struggling with temptation. They tend to withdraw from the fellowship and the communion of the saints, and that's the exact opposite of what we should do. So don't withdraw when times are tough. Don't just come on Sunday morning and never speak to another believer throughout the week. Where We need to live life together. So if we're willing to do this, to, to share our joys and sorrows together, to share struggles and temptations, then we'll know more experientially that we're not alone, right? That, everyone, that other people are wrestling with the same things. And then we'll be more equipped to stave off the lies of the evil one. Peter 10, or in, uh, in verse 10, Peter's reminding us that uh, this struggle is not permanent, but it is just a little while. How long is a little while? Well, it may be the span of our lives, right? We know that our, our, uh, our lives are a mist that vanishes, right? They're, they're so brief. We have all these scriptural analogies for how brief they are. 
uh, grass that flourishes in the morning and withers in the evening, right? So we might suffer for the duration of our lives, our entire lives, you know, in some way or another. Um, yet, as Peter has said before, this pales in comparison to eternity. So Peter describes this, this God of all grace, right, who is, he has done all things well, who's lavished his grace on us without holding back, has called us to his eternal glory. We have this contrast that after we have suffered for a little while, we will experience glory for all eternity. And I love how Peter says that, this God, that God himself will minister to his saints. Uh, God himself will minister to us. That God tenderly cares for us. That he will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Um, this word restore means to put in order, to make right, to complete. And when I was thinking about uh, restoration, it made me think of the book of Joel, actually. Um, in the book of Joel, I don't know how familiar you are with it, but at the beginning of the book, in chapter 1, God is describing this judgment that he's bringing uh, on the people of Israel, and he describes this judgment in terms of, like, just hordes of locusts. They come and just eat everything. There's nothing left. It's all gone. Um, and then we have this great promise of hope in Joel 2, where God is describing restoration. It says, The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. This is comprehensive. Right? There's nothing in this life that we lose that God cannot repay. Right? Lost abilities, um, lost limbs, lost mental faculties, lost spouses, lost children. All will be made new and made right with the return of the king. Um, I love how poetically it's put in uh, Be Still My Soul. In verse 3, it says, Be still my soul when dearest friends depart. And all is darkened in the veil of tears. Then shall you better know his love, his heart, who comes to soothe your sorrow and your fears. Be still, my soul, your Jesus can repay from his own fullness all he takes away. Right, God's restoration is comprehensive. It is complete. And this restoration, as we think about restoration, we think about the world around us, but it also includes us, right? God is... God is renovating us as well. Uh, this means that God will complete the good work that he has begun in us, that he will bring his purposes to us, for us, to fruition. And so God will restore us, and he will confirm and strengthen and establish you. Uh, these are similar terms. What Peter is saying is that he will restore us to a settled and peaceable condition. Uh, Matthew Henry puts it this way, he will settle them upon Christ the foundation so firmly that their union with him might be indissoluble and everlasting. We have this fixed position in Christ. We have this rock, a cornerstone, as Peter said in chapter 2, solid ground supporting us. The house of God is built upon the rock of Christ. Christ is our firm foundation. And he will give us strength. It talks about strengthen 
uh, he will strengthen the weak. He'll give us courage uh, to face our adversary, right, in, this, in these difficulties and this uh, spiritual warfare of this life. And then in verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Um, as we stand against the devil and as we suffer in this life, we're not alone, but we're supported by the one who has all authority and dominion. Uh, Peter's not wishing or uh, praying that God had the power to accomplish all this. He's rejoicing in the fact that uh, God's uh, power is forever, that it will endure, um, that God does have the power to accomplish his will, and that is a source of praise for his saints. Right? We revel in the power of God because we know that it is being exercised for our good. All right, verse 12, 12 to 14, the last couple of verses. By Silvanus, a, fi- a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. All right, so some of this we covered in week one. Uh, Silvanus is Silas, Paul's traveling companion. He's now delivering, personally delivering the letter to the churches of Asia Minor on Peter's behalf as this trusted messenger um, and partner in the gospel. And Silas may have also uh, penned the letter for Peter. And then Peter says, uh, this is the true grace of God. Uh, this is the truth. Um, he, put, he puts this same idea in 2 Peter 1.16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. But again, Peter's saying this is not a myth. This is not something that is made up by men. This is the truth. And so the word is God's grace to us, right? It's how we know of salvation. It's how we know of his electing love for us, that he's called us out of darkness into this marvelous inheritance and a hope and a future with all the saints. And it's how we grow up into maturity, as he described in chapter 2 as well. And so we have this, this true grace of God. And he says, stand firm in it. Um, stand firm in it. Uh, that is a word for the church in every age. Stand firm in the truth. Stand firm in the gospel. Um, stand firm in what Christ has done for you. Right? All the world is changing around us. Nations come, nations go. Um, societies change, cultural values change, right? but the church is called to stand fast, to be immovably dedicated to the truth, to be firmly rooted uh, in Christ. Think of that, of the picture of Psalm 1, right? The, uh, the tree that's planted by streams of water that's yielding fruit in season and out, right? We know that refers to Christ, but that should be a picture of the church in Christ as well, that we are firmly rooted to the truth, that we're yielding the fruit of the gospel year in and year out. Um, or Matthew 7, right? The winds blow, the waters rise, right? The house that's built on the rock endures, it stands firm. So this book and all of scripture is God's grace to us in the midst of suffering. We need to stand firm in it. We know that God will bring us safely home. We need to hold fast to the, to the written word and to the word made flesh. Verse 13, uh, Peter describes writing from Babylon, which is Rome, Uh, He says that the church there sends you greetings. Uh, Just another reminder uh, that even uh, that churches are not alone, that we have brethren in other parts of the world who care for us uh, and are praying um, for us in our suffering. That was true in Peter's day, as he's describing here. And it's true of um, our day as well. We think of our 
evening prayer services on Sunday evenings where we're actually routinely praying for other churches, uh, both in, our, in, Rich, in the Richmond area and throughout the world. Um, and Peter mentions Mark as well. Mark, my son. Uh, Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark uh, from Peter's eyewitness account and traveled with Paul and Barnabas. Mark was to Peter in many ways what Timothy was to Paul, a son in the faith and a trusted companion. Um, and both Mark and Peter have these very kind of public failures that are recorded in Scripture, um, but both are trophies of God's restoring grace as well. Um, and I think that's helpful as well for us to consider that, you know, don't ever think that God is done with you or God can't use you or you don't have gifts that God can use, right? The word is this, abide in me and you will bear much fruit, right? God is the one who brings the fruit. Peter says, greet one another with a kiss of love in verse 14. Uh, this is a similar term to uh, Paul's letters in uh, Romans 16, 16 or 1 Corinthians sixteen twenty, where he says, a holy kiss. Uh, this is a cultural greeting. It's denoting warm affection. In our context, this would be a hug or a, a, a handshake and a warm smile. Right? The point is that the, the saints should love one another and care for one another, which should be evident in the way that we warmly greet each other. There should be actual affection between the members of the church. And he says, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Uh, Peter ends this letter uh, really how he started, with this benediction of the peace of Christ to them. I think of verse 2, where he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is a, a bookend of that verse. And it's a final reminder of the gospel that we've been reconciled uh, through Christ, that Christ has achieved this reconciliation for us, that we were enemies, but now we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, in conclusion, I don't think I have anything better to say than what Peter has just said here, that this is the true grace of God and stand firm in it. We need to stand firm in the gospel. Nothing can truly harm us. That's such a helpful reminder. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. No suffering in this life can keep us from inheriting all that God has promised, but is ultimately used for our good by our faithful creator. And so we can rejoice even in suffering because we know the end of the story. We know how the story ends. And in the meantime, as Peter has been exhorting us, we need to strive for holiness. We need to long for the pure spiritual milk of the word that by it we may grow up in salvation, right? We need to live in humility and humble reliance on God, trusting in his sovereignty, especially in his power and his justice and his goodness and his love toward us in Christ. And to set our hope fully on the grace we brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right, we're at the end of our time. Let me go, for, go ahead and uh, pray for us, and we'll close. All right, Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you for uh, this word. Thank you for Scripture. We pray that we would grow in love for it. We thank you for the grace of God that you've given us. pray that you would give us an eternal perspective to rejoice despite adversity. Uh, we thank you for your sovereignty and your care for us. We thank you for the church, Lord. You've given us the, uh, you've brought us into the family of God for our encouragement. You've given us brothers and sisters um, to live life with. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that you are making all things new. We pray that you would come soon, Lord Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.